Well, good morning, New Hope family. Glad to be with you this morning, although this is different than what we had wanted and intended. Really grateful for the worship that we just enjoyed and opportunity to worship together. Probably feels a bit like we've stepped back in time, like maybe this is like six months reverse and we found ourselves doing exactly what we were doing earlier back in May and April and March and a little bit into June. But here we are, it's a reality. We have three weeks of at least three weeks virtual church ahead of us. And I'm prepared mentally to go longer if we need to than the three weeks. But right now, we know that we need to take these three weeks and, and do church virtually. It's in the best interest of everyone who's part of the New Hope family. And so it was a decision that the leadership team made in order to make sure that we have a really safe environment for everyone. And during these three weeks, we're going to be doing a, a reassessment, reevaluating when is the best time to reopen. And hopefully it will be at the end of these three weeks. But for now, um, we're going to take it a day at a time and, and step back into the parables and be encouraged. I want you to be very encouraged this morning. I think especially you're going to find yourself strengthened for the material that we're looking at. This particular material that we find where we're at in Matthew this morning uh, begins with Jesus being just north of Jerusalem. In Matthew 19 is where I'd like to encourage you to go, and we'll pray together in just a minute. But if you turn your Bible to Matthew 19 and then Matthew 20, you're going to be right in the area where we're supposed to be. Here's the setup just before we go to a time of prayer. Jesus is about to give a lesson on what to expect when you cross the threshold into eternity. And he's going to use this very familiar phrase that we've been seeing for over a year now both during times in in-person services and during times of virtual services, we've seen this phrase over and over and over again. Look with me on the screen. I'm sure you're watching at home from your television or your laptop or your telephone. It says this, for the kingdom of heaven has like. How many times have we heard Jesus say that? Over the course of this last year, year and a half, it seems like every single weekend starts out that way. For the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, this particular session that he's addressing that issue of what the kingdom of heaven is like is for this reason. He's just been approached by a rich young ruler in Matthew 19. And this particular rich young ruler has come to him and has said, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus enters into a dialogue with him and begins describing how to keep the commandments. And then he gives him one more instruction. He says, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Well, the young man, we're told, went away very discouraged because he had much property and he didn't want to do what Jesus asked him. So on the heels of that, Jesus begins describing what the kingdom of heaven is like in Matthew 19, and then he does it again in Matthew 20. And here's what he wants us to get in Matthew 20. I'm going to give it to you up front so you get it as a synopsis. He says, it's like this overwhelming truth that no matter what the circumstances no matter what they may have been, when an individual comes to Jesus for salvation, that one, that individual receives the same magnificent salvation as anyone else who's gone on before them. In other words, the same salvation that awaited Abraham and Sarah and David and Martha and Mary and Paul and Joseph and Timothy and Philip and Billy Graham, and John Wesley, and Martin Luther, that same salvation that awaited them awaits you precisely the same. 
And that's what Jesus wants us to get in this particular parable, that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, there's an eternal reward waiting in store for you. Uh, with that framework in your mind, I would like for you to go to prayer with me right now. And I would love to pray with you about the circumstances of why we even have to do virtual church, but also about God helping us to be reminded and encouraged and strengthened over this passage this morning. So would you join me? Let's step together as a church family into a time of prayer. Father, we come before you with hearts united, even though we're part of church through pixels. We see images on screen, and, and we can admit that it doesn't always feel connected the way that you intend us to feel connected. That's what we long for. So God, I ask that right now that you would unite, you would knit, you would bond together our hearts in a commonness, that we recognize that we come before you with an earnest desire that we would be together again as a church family. We look forward to that day. We look forward to seeing each other. We look forward to the eradication of this virus from our planet. God, you can do that. Thank you for the vaccines that are being developed. Thank you for science. Thank you for medicine. Thank you for the gifts that you've blessed us with. But for this moment right now, God, while we look forward with a thankful heart, even to this week especially because of Thanksgiving, we at the same time ask that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us, that we would take on this week as more courageous people. So we pray that you would use your word to do that. God, I pray specifically for our church that you would bond us right now over the commonness of what we see in Matthew 19 and Matthew 20. We pray for that in the power and the strength of Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. I can hear you doing it, even though I'm seeing it through camera. By the way, in the auditorium here with me are the camera operators, and the tech people are busy doing what they're doing, and, and there's a couple leadership people who are making sure that things function well here, along with the worship people. But that's it. Everybody else is watching from home or from work or from parking lots or wherever we're at, but we're still united together. So let me encourage you to do something before we step into this. Would you right now take a moment, if you're doing this through Facebook, um, take a minute just to type in the comments of where you're watching from. It'd be very encouraging to the staff and the leadership team to, to see the comments. So if you're watching from Alabama, let us know. If you're watching from mid-Michigan, let us know. We'll be very encouraged to hear that and, and to see where you're at. So here's where we're going with this story in Matthew. I want to take you first to the Old Testament. And what you find in the Old Testament is that when you open up the book of Ezekiel, you find Ezekiel in Babylonian captivity, along with the rest of the nation. They've been carried away there as captives because they're a defeated nation. And Ezekiel has a specific job. God allows Ezekiel, his chosen prophet, to be carried into captivity to have a role, and his role is to remind the people of God why they're in captivity, why they were exiled in the first place. As a nation, they had drifted completely away from God. And if that wasn't bad enough, they find themselves in this position where they're accusing God for their circumstances, even though they brought it upon themselves. And so Ezekiel is there to remind them, there's things that you've done that have brought you to these circumstances, yet they begin questioning, challenging, even flagrantly throwing it in God's face that he put them there, therefore he's an unjust God, he's not fair. 
So Ezekiel has to say certain things like this to them. You see this on your screen, Ezekiel 18.25. You say the way of the Lord is not right? Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not right? Is it not your ways that are not right? Or this, only four verses later in verse 29. But the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not right. Are my ways not right, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are not right? It is very dangerous ground to challenge the very one who is the personification of justice. I want you to hear this because this is a common theme throughout this parable that you're going to be looking at this morning. Hear this. When people doubt the justice of God, it's because of a perverted view of justice. When people doubt the justice of God, or we would say the fairness of God, it's because of a perverted view of just, justice. This goes to the very issue that's common within our world today. I'm sure that you've heard this argument or you've participated in perhaps this conversation at some point in your life. The argument goes like this. If God was really a loving God, there wouldn't be any sickness on the planet. If God was really a fair God, everyone would have equal. No one would have greater or less. Or maybe you've heard this one or participated in this yourself. Would a loving God, would a fair God really send people to hell? See, all those questions, all those issues, those are rooted in this particular issue of people doubting the justice of God. When people doubt the justice of God, it's always because of perverted views of justice. God's very person is the standard for justice. There's no greater measuring rod than God. He is the standard for justice. God says He is the measuring rod for all fairness. Therefore, it's impossible for Him to be unjust. That's why the Bible says God cannot lie. But I realize that's using circular reasoning. That's using the Bible to support the Bible. We're going to look at it from a different way this morning because of the way Jesus presents this parable. In no area is God's fairness more significant than in regard to the issue of salvation. And you must fully grasp this issue. If you've been distracted up till now in, in the service, just bear down and really pay attention to this. You must really get down what we're about to talk about. You must fully comprehend this. This issue of God's fairness, this issue of God's justice, it will carry you through the darkest of times if you're a believer in Jesus. Because what you're believing is that God is doing all things together for your good. That he's working a plan. He's accomplishing a purpose. You must fully grasp this, that no matter what the circumstances, when an individual comes to Jesus for salvation, that person, if you've come to Jesus for salvation, you can depend upon the reality that a magnificent, fantastic salvation waits for you. And that will carry you through the darkest, darkest of water. Now, that is the overwhelming truth that Jesus presents to us today, and I hope you find it very encouraging. No matter what is going on, no matter how much your world might have been rocked this last week, be reminded and be encouraged by this. This is perhaps the longest of the parables. 
It actually begins in chapter 19, the very last verse of chapter 19, verse 30 of chapter 19. That's what we're going to put on the screen for you in just a minute, and you're going to see this. He's going to talk about many who were last being first and first being last. I want you to go into that verse with this thought in mind. Remember, originally when the Bible was written, there were no chapter breaks. There was no chapter 19, chapter 20, chapter 21. That was put into the Western World Bible to help us stay with the flow of it. So there's no break in Jesus' conversation when he says this in verse 30. Look with me at this. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, that's a proverb that was created by Jesus. The phrase appears in the first century, and it's written many, many times throughout the first century, but no one could really trace it any further back than before the time of Jesus because we understand it originated with Jesus. It's a proverb that Jesus stated, that Jesus created, and it's been co-opted by culture. Well, what is that referring to? In context, the way that Jesus is using it, it can only have one application, and you're going to see that as we move forward. Let's go back into his statement in Matthew 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like, and it says this, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, do you notice if you have your Bible open right now, you're going to want to take the word for and circle it because that word for, it actually links you back to chapter 19 to verse 30. It's it's like this. Why, Jesus? For this reason. It's like this. He's been speaking about the life of day laborers here. And in the world of day laborers, he wanted us to get this understanding about the first, last, and the last first. Now, I experienced this when I I grew up in um, western Michigan on the Lake Michigan shoreline. And a lot of blueberry farms over there in Holland, Grand Haven, and the area where I grew up in Whitehall. And these blueberry farms needed day laborers to come in. And as a teenager, I would go out and work on these blueberry farms. I'm very familiar with day laborers because I was one. I, I know what it is to go out. And mom wouldn't just hand out money to us. She would tell us, you got to go earn it. So during the summertime, we'd go early in the morning, 6, 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning, and we'd begin picking blueberries. And we'd pick all day long sometimes. When Lori and I moved to Arizona, we saw the exact same thing. We noticed that in the marketplaces, when individuals wanted day work, they would go to the market parking lots, the grocery stores, and they would wait for owners of property, citrus farms, to come and pick them up. Today, we think of migrant workers being in the exact same way. This is a very, very common setting to have day laborers. That's what Jesus is describing. So here comes verse 2. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, and by the way, that's a standard of payment, it's a coin. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those, he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. So this landowner apparently has a very large vineyard, and he needs day laborers. He needs workers to go in and help him manage the crop, perhaps in this case to harvest the crop. We're not told specifically in the story, but he needs these workers. Now, even to this day, vineyards in Israel are planted on hillsides. And perhaps you've seen photos of the Middle East where you've seen what appears to be like a a white stripe across the mountainside. That's the terrace lines, and here's what they do. 
most of the mountains, most of the hillsides in that particular area are, are stony, and it takes a lot of work to prepare them. So they begin hauling all the stones off the hillside as they begin flattening terrace spots for the vineyards. Well, the stones are taken out to the perimeter, and they, they create a perimeter wall, which looks like, from a distance, a white stripe on the side of the mountain. Well, after they've removed all the stone, then they need to replace the area where the stony soil was with really fertilized, very fertile soil. That means somebody's got to haul it up the hillside from the bottom valley area. Well, as these workers haul it up the hillside, they begin taking this good soil and dumping on this terraced area, and over time, the crops have been grown, in this case, a vineyard. Throughout the growing season, the vines had to be pruned, and the soil had to be improved, and it's very, very time-consuming. As they finish their work, the harvesting is usually done in September. The rainy season comes not long after that, and they have to harvest the grapes before the rainy season kicks in, and so it's still very hot in September when they're doing the work. But he needs the laborers. He needs them to work throughout the day to take care of the crops, and it's a really hectic, hectic time. So he begins looking for temporary labor, and the temp labor comes in from the area villages and towns. Now, these temporary workers, they're very unskilled. Most of them were not educated at all. They had not apprenticed. No one had taught them carpentry. No one had taught them the skill of making jars. Most of them had almost zero education. So you would find them at the very bottom of the social economic ladder in their society. And much of the work that they could do lasted no more than a day at a time. That's why they were called day laborers. So in Israel, farm workers began their day very, very early. Actually, at six in the morning is when they had to be on the job. So they had to show up before that. So 6 a.m., and Jesus calls that the first hour in this particular parable. That would be 6 a.m., so the workers gather in the marketplace and they wait for a landowner to show up and they're available for him and he arrives and he finds them waiting and because they're desperate for work and they're not trained individuals, many times they were taken advantage of and they were oppressed and they were underpaid. And as you read the Bible, you find God has a huge heart for people who are oppressed. He has compassion for those who ex are exploited. And so we find things like this, Leviticus 19.13, you shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until the morning. In other words, pay your hired hands. They need the income. Pay them every day at the end of the day because they've got a family to feed. And they literally were working hand to mouth. And to feed their children, they had to be paid at the end of the day so the wife could go out and buy the food necessary. Well, in this case, the wealthy landowner enters into an agreement with these laborers. A denarius for the day. I know this is all background material, but you need to understand this to know this story. A denarius is very good pay if you received a denarius for a day. That was the wage of a skilled craftsman. That was the wage of a trained Roman soldier. These individuals are not trained. They're unskilled, but they're getting paid very, very well. Now, if the workday starts out at 6 a.m., that's the first hour, logically, the third hour is 9 a.m. 
So in verse 3, we find that it's around that time that this landowner has come back to the marketplace, and he saw others who were standing idle. Now, perhaps they've arrived late, or maybe they're weak and they couldn't do as much work. But standing idle doesn't mean that they're lazy. It doesn't indicate that they're not wanting to work. They want to work. That's why they're there. It means that they're unemployed. That they're in the marketplace demonstrates they want to work. But what you notice missing here is the owner doesn't offer a specific wage. He just says, I'll put you to work too, and whatever's right, I'll give you in verse 4. Now go with me to verse 5. Again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing idle all day long? Verse 7, they said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Now, this is crucial to get this part down. The sixth hour is noon. The ninth hour is 3 p.m., We find him still hiring laborers, crucial, get this down, at the 11th hour. So he started workers at 6 a.m. and then 9 a.m. and then 12 and then 3 p.m. And now he's hiring people at 5 p.m. He's back. He's found others who are standing. And there's no explanation as to why other than that no one hired them. They've been waiting for work all day long. Now, maybe they are also too old or too weak, and no one picked them up and hired them. The point is this. Even at that late hour, there's still hope. They're hoping to be brought in. They want to be part of this too, and so the landowner comes back. He's looking for more workers. He wants more to come in, and so he comes back and he hires them. So that last group, note this, that last group is going to work only one hour. Go with me to verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group first. The last group to the first, when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. So pay the workers. It's the end of the day. Don't hold the money over through the night like Leviticus says. The landowner understands that. Call the laborers in and pay them. But the instruction by which Jesus says to do it is very unusual. Begin payment with the last group that was hired first. Pay those individuals to the first. So Jesus is going to use this very unusual order to show how self-serving ideas of fairness forms our view of God. Hear that again. Jesus is going to use this very unusual order of paying the last workers first to show this self-serving idea of fairness shapes our view of God. In other words, this, if I lost you on that, hear this. God is fair when the end result serves my expectation. God's fair, this is the way people think, God's fair, God is just when the end result serves my expectation of what God's going to do. And this is where the parable and the proverb that Jesus just stated are merging together. Remember the proverb, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. This is a merging of the proverb and the parable. He's making a direct application of the proverb that's found here in the structure of the parable right between verse 8 and verse 12. 
See, hear this. Although the procedure of paying the last people first is not necessarily normal, that in itself is not concerning to the laborers. That wouldn't bother them. That wouldn't be so uncommon. Here's what makes the alarm bells rings. This is what is so shocking to them. The profound action by the landowner to give the people who were hired at 5 o'clock a full day's wage, to give them a denarius. Look with me on the screen again at verse 9. Those hired about the 11th hour came. Each one received a denarius, a whole day's wage. Just get this through your head. Those who showed up and were hired at 5 o'clock, who were brought out to the vineyard, barely had time to learn what they needed to do, are paid precisely the same wage as those who started at 6 a.m., but they don't know it yet. Those who were hired at 9 o'clock and at noon and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they also get paid a denarius. Watch verse 10. Let's go back into the story. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. Now, at this point, the first shift has no problem with the owner. In fact, they're convinced that they're going to get a pay raise. They're thinking, this is great. Those guys who just showed up at 5 o'clock, they're going to get more money. That means we're going to get more money. We're going to get paid really well because the landowner gives a very generous full day's wage for this hour of work. They assume that they're going to get much, much more. They've jumped to a conclusion about the wealthy landowner and how he carries out their view of justice. Just think this through. Just calculate this with me mathematically. At the rate the 11th hour guys are paid, the rest of the workers, they can quickly calculate they're going to get 12 days worth of pay. This is the way their mind is working. But verse 10, part B, says this, but each of them also received a denarius. Verse 11, when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day? They react exactly as you would expect humans to react. And this is a perfect scenario for Jesus' point. It's a very human reaction. That's not fair. That's the exact same thing we cried out as children to our parents when it looked like somebody got a better portion than we did or somebody got something that we didn't get. That's not fair. They have a perceived, a preconceived idea of justice, of what they believe fairness is going to be. So when we as humans think we get gypped, that's the phrase we're quick to go to. They only worked an hour. We worked all day long in the scorching heat. Why should they get paid equal to us? It's a fair question, I guess, because it appears that they didn't get something they thought they were going to get. So let's just reason through this. Verse 11 actually says they began to mumble and grumble. You see one Greek word in your notes this morning. You'll see it on the screen, engangudzo. 
And ngongudzo is just a fun word to say, actually, even in the Greek language. But it literally means what you see it to mean, to, to grumble and murmur. Here's why they're grumbling and murmuring. Not just about the wage, but the way they achieve the wage. They say that we had to work through the heat of the day. When I lived in Arizona, Lori and I experienced this easterly wind that the Middle East is famous for. When you live in the desert area, it's called the, the burner of the day. In the Middle East, it's especially known that way, and it's written that way in the Greek language. It's a wind that is so powerful and so hot, you do anything to find shade. It parches your lips, it dries your throat, it puts so much dust in the air. It's just a horrible circumstance. And they said that they endured that as vineyard workers. We had to go through that. And we worked really hard, and we started at 6 in the morning, and we worked till 6 at night. Can you imagine a 12-hour workday every single day? And they worked, by the way, six days a week. So they're doing long weeks of work. They're doing long shifts, long hours, and clearly they're disappointed because they receive the same payment, and they feel devalued. Not, not only would this be true in the ancient world, this would be true today because we have a mindset of what fair is based on preconceived ideas, what the expectations are. So let's ask ourselves this question. Is their argument of a preconceived, perceived injustice legitimate? Or did they draw the conclusions based on their definition of what fair is? What I said earlier is this, God is fair when in our minds, His actions meet our expectations. God is fair in our minds when the end result serves our expectations. Now, for his part, the landowner apparently is standing very nearby, and he stands near his foreman when the wages are paid out to each of the workers, and he hears the grumbling. So verse 13, this is how the landowner responds. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give, notice this phrase, to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the owner, first of all, lets them know they're out of line. They're completely out of line, but he does it in a really courteous way. Friend, there's no wrong that's been done to you. We had a clear agreement at 6 a.m. in the morning when we met in the marketplace. You agreed to work for a denarius, and it was a very good wage. You agreed to give 12 hours. I agreed to pay you for 12 hours. What is the problem with this? Well, the problem is not injustice, as Jesus is showing. There's no injustice done here. The problem is jealousy. And he calls it out. Is your eye envious because I'm generous? This is, mind you, Jesus is just telling this parable off the top of his head. That's why I say Jesus is scary smart. He, he's driving home this point that he really wants people in the first century to get. He really wants us to get. Jealousy and envy are not based on reason. They're based on selfishness. In other words, putting self first. So jealousy and envy are not based on reason. It's based on putting self first. Now, like it or not, what I expect 
carries over to how I view God. This charge of unfairness in this scripture, in this parable, is not grounded on a love for justice. It's grounded on a presumption. The presumption is this, they deserve something that they're not entitled to. They want more. The parable's point is this, the the owner has the right to treat all the workers the same. But Jesus isn't teaching us economics here. This isn't what his intent is. He's using this to teach something wonderfully more important. We really need to get this part down. Watch how he finishes this, Matthew 20, verse 16. So the last shall be first, and the first last. If you have your Bible open right now, just let your eyes drift back up to verse 14. Did you you notice that the hired workers, those that were hired at the 11th hour, are called the last? I emphasized that when I was reading it. The 11th hour workers are called the last workers. He's completing the reuse of the proverb, and he ends with the exact same proverb. So the last shall be first and the first last. Let's sew all this together now. I think we would agree this perspective is accurate. The landowner is not obligated to hire them in the first place. That he hires them and gives these unskilled individuals a job at all is merely an expression of his grace. He's the landowner who showed up early and he hired workers who had no employment. They had nothing to look forward to, nothing to care for their family with, and he's given them a future. And now they come with a sense of jealousy. So to really understand this parable, we need to understand who and what is represented here. Because Jesus explicitly said this parable is all about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like. So what is the vineyard? Well, the vineyard is the kingdom. The wealthy landowner is God. You see all this in your notes if you loaded them down this morning. And you could still do that. It's not too late. Load those down off the website. Bring them down off the link that Jeff sent you. Look at this. The vineyard is the kingdom. The wealthy landowner in this parable is God. Hear this. The denarius is eternal life. All of them receive the denarius because of the capacity of the landowner. They're trusting the landowner. They're trusting in his provision. Now, hear me on this. I'm not implying in any way that we earn eternity. That's not the point of this parable, and that's not what Jesus is driving at. And then we have this fourth component. Let's take it a step further. The work day. The work day that began for some at six and for others at five o'clock, that's a person's lifetime. Specifically, not just any person. This is a believer in Jesus. So when we begin speaking of a person's lifetime, we're talking about a person's life that begins when they become a believer in Jesus and their service to Christ. Those are the four major components of what's going on in the midst of this parable. And God's principle is very, very simple here. Every person who comes to Jesus receives the same gracious, eternal salvation. So whether someone truly believes as a small child, maybe you came to faith in Jesus Christ as a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old, Or maybe you know someone who came to faith in Jesus on their deathbed. 
Jesus is saying they all come into the kingdom on the same basis, faith in Jesus to forgive and to save. And the result is each one receives the same eternal glory. Each one gets the same wage, if you will. Now, personally, I can't read this parable without thinking of the thief on the cross. I bet your mind went there as well. We have Jesus being crucified and a man on his right and a man on his left, and they're both thieves. But the one on his right, we're told, turned to Jesus while he's on the cross, and with his last breath, he said to Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? That one, according to what Jesus is teaching here, receives the same salvation as Peter, as Paul, as Abraham. And catch this. He, on the cross, did not have one hour to serve Christ. The only thing he could do was spend his last moments defending Jesus on the cross to the crowd who was accusing him and to the other man who was another thief on the cross. And he said, don't you fear God? This man has done nothing wrong. So he finds himself serving Christ by defending Christ. But we're looking at the last moments of a person's life here. He didn't have one hour to serve. He knew just enough about Jesus to be saved, and even that was razor thin. So his service was limited to those last moments on the cross. But the disciples, they had an entire lifetime. They had all the remaining years ahead of them to serve their king. Now, here's what's stunning to me. According to what Jesus is telling us, you're going to meet that thief who was on the cross one day in heaven. He'll walk up to you or you'll walk up to him and he'll say, how do you do? I was the guy who hung on the cross next to Jesus. I look forward to that day. It may take you thousands of years to find him among all the millions and millions of people who will be there. But you're going to meet him one day because he was equally saved by the king of kings. Now, hear me on this. I want to be very clear because this parable is not about personal rewards. We're told that there's crowns waiting for us. We're told that there's rewards waiting. And those things determine the scope of our personal positional authority in eternity. That's not what this one's talking about. This is talking about the common privilege of eternal life, which Jesus gives to all believers. You have that this morning. Regardless of how things might be going in your world and how rocky they might be right here in the midst of November 2020, God says, I've got you, and I've got a reward waiting for you. Before Jesus, all of us were equally lost. In Jesus, every one of us are equally saved. That's the future of all believers. It's eternal life. All believers are going to receive the crown of life. All believers are going to receive the crown of righteousness. All believers are going to receive the crown of glory. And none of us is worthy of it. It's because of the gift of God, the free gift of God through Jesus Christ, the one who is the landowner, the one who's gracious and merciful to us. So we end with this. I want you to hear why Jesus told this parable. If you back up in Matthew 19, what you find is Peter approaching Jesus with a question. And Jesus asked this question. Lord, what will we receive when we come into the kingdom? He says, we've left all for you. We've forsaken everything to follow you. 
And you find that wedged in between the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus telling this parable that you just heard. And Jesus is responding to people who truly believe in him. He wants them to know you have an equal playing field. You're all going to receive rewards. Some will receive rewards for their service, but all will receive the reward of eternal life. And truly, the disciples had forsaken everything to follow Jesus. But here's what Jesus is driving home in this parable. Former prostitutes, former tax collectors, and thieves hanging on the cross, they will receive the same eternal life as Paul and Peter, meaning this. There's no low-class mansions in heaven, church. There aren't. We all receive the same thing. Now, you might be thinking right now, okay, what do I do with this, Mark? What, what are my action steps? How do I use this? Let me just hear, have you hear me on this. You don't always need action steps. The parables that we've heard up till this point over the last year, they've given you enough action steps that if you just act on those from here to eternity, you'll have more than you can do. But here's this one action step you can use this for. Sometimes it's good just to be encouraged and strengthened. Perhaps you can use what you learned this morning to pass it on to someone else who is also a believer. Remind them this morning. Encourage them. You know a fellow believer? Remind them of what this parable is teaching. And here's what it's teaching in a big picture way for me from the 30,000-foot view. If God already has your eternity secure, what do you have to fear? Nothing. That's why God says, I'm causing all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who work according to his purpose, he's got it all taken care of. Let's pray together, New Hope. Father, I thank you for every person who's joined us this morning. No matter what state we're in or what county we're in, thank you for the reminder from your word this morning. You encourage us, you strengthen us, and for that we praise you. We thank you for the week ahead. We look forward to Thanksgiving that we can celebrate with truly thankful hearts for how you have blessed us, and you have blessed us incredibly. Help us to be thankful for what we do have and not for what we don't have. God, you, you've given us a reminder this morning that we do have eternity. Let us dwell on that, Father. Remind us through the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we ask for these things. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.